courtroom situation where a man has been arrested and he's being put on trial and when the prosecuting attorney gets up to present his case, his whole case is, I think that guy did it. Yeah, my opinion is he is surely guilty. And I hope that you all as the jury will convict him of this crime because I'm just pretty sure that he's the one who did it. Can you imagine a, a, a prosecuting attorney making a case like that? Well, there's no, there's no hope that he would be able to get a conviction, right? The jury would just dismiss that out of hand and the guy would walk free. If the only case that the prosecuting attorney has is, I think so, my opinion says, he couldn't prove that to anyone, could he? And what does he need to do? If he really wants to convict the man of the crime, what's he got to do? He's got to produce the evidence, right? He's got to give the good, hard, sound evidence that will, will be able to convince any honest person that's the guy who did the crime. He's the one who should be punished. Evidence is so critical in such a situation. Well, in our series of studies here in the month of June, we've been talking about evidence. Not about uh, in a court of law concerning someone who has committed a crime, but we've been talking about evidence in a far even more important realm, evidence concerning spiritual things, evidence concerning our faith in God, in His creation, in the inspired Word of God, in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We've been talking about evidence. And I hope that we've been able to demonstrate that we, what we believe and what we practice is not just based upon the so-called blind leap of faith. That's what our critics accuse us of, that we just sort of close our eyes and take a leap. Can't prove it, you just have to, to just let it be. No, that's not the case at all. We believe that we have definite evidence, convincing, compelling evidence concerning the things that we believe and practice religiously. We want to conclude that series of studies this morning. Again, all of our studies have been concerning the evidence. Our study this morning is sort of a summary case. That is, we want to talk about the evidence that indicates that the Bible is true and we believe it. So we're going to talk in sort of in summary to our series of lessons about evidence. We're going to say the evidence is clear. The Bible is true and we can believe it. Thanks for being here this morning. We're so grateful for your presence. Glad for everyone is here. We have a number of visitors today, and we're always glad for our visitors. We want you to know you're welcome. We'd love for you to come back every time you have a chance to be here. And also know that we are open to your questions. If you have any questions about what we're doing here at College View or why, please ask us so that we can answer. We hope that in our time together in worship this morning, we can accomplish important goals. Our number one goal is to bring honor and glory to God. We certainly hope that that will be the case. We believe we can accomplish that by worshiping Him and serving Him as He has revealed in the pages of His Word. So we're going to try to worship in spirit and in truth this morning. That will be our goal. And we also hope as a goal that when we are finished, everyone can say, I was built up. I was edified by the time we spent together this morning. So those are our objectives. Thanks for being here to participate in those things today. Let's talk about the evidence. The evidence says the Bible is true. I believe it. I'm guessing that the vast majority of us who are here this morning also believe it. If you happen not to be a Bible believer, we're glad you're here. In fact, for those who don't believe the Bible, we have some questions to ask. You know, we feel like as Christians, we have a burden to prove what we believe. 
We, we think that's our obligation. We accept that obligation. And that's really what we've been doing in this series of lessons, is producing evidence. Now, we'd sort of like to turn the tables. If you are not a Bible believer, then we think there's some things that you have to explain too. We try to explain what we believe and give the evidence for it, but if you're a, a doubter or a denier of the things that are taught in the Word of God, then we believe that, that you have to also accept a burden of explanation. For instance, I believe the Bible, but if I didn't, there'd be some curiosities. For instance, I'd be curious about the survival of the Bible. Now, this does, the first couple of points we're going to make here don't necessarily prove the Scriptures being true, but they certainly raise some, raise some eyebrows. There's some questions to ask. How has the Bible survived for so long? You know, the Bible is really an ancient book. I'm not talking about the one that you're holding. Yours may begin to look like this one. I've, I had to glue and tape this one this week because it's coming apart at the seams. This, this is a pretty old Bible. I've had it for a number of years. But I'm not talking about this Bible or yours. I'm talking about the Bible in general. It's actually a very old book. The newest parts of our Bible are to, about 2,000 years old. The oldest parts of our Bible are about 3,500 years old. The Bible's been around for a very long time. When the Bible was a, originally written and when copies were being made of it, uh, certainly no printing presses or copying machines, uh, they were written on tablets, clay tablets, or uh, uh, specially prepared animal skins. Uh, and then as they advanced, they began to use very crude forms of uh, early papers. But that's how the Bible was conveyed for a long time. Uh, think about that. This, this message preserved even when there weren't good means of making copies or distributing them. And on top of that, throughout the ages, there have been several attempts to actually destroy the Bible, to wipe it out. For instance, in the year 303 A.D., the Roman Emperor Diocletian made an edict that all Bibles should be collected and burned. And so there was a real effort to destroy the Bible but despite that, the Bible survived. You know, other books, most, in fact, almost all other books of antiquity have been lost because of apathy. People just didn't care. And so they, they fell into disuse and disappeared. The Bible has endured even when there were concerted efforts to destroy it. This book survived. And we just asked the question, wonder why? Just ask a question. Doesn't prove it necessary, but just ask a question. Was there some force... Protecting this book from destruction, maybe? Something to think about. If I didn't believe the Bible, I'd also be surprised at its popularity. Uh, again, we're making an argument without even opening the pages of the book, but the Bible is continually uh, among the most popular books in the world. The Bible has been translated into over 1,700, 1,700 different languages. Annually, the Bible is on bestseller list. The Bible is known throughout all the world. In fact, all the greatest art and literature of, uh, of history is, is filled with references to and allusions to the Bible. Uh, how has it maintained that sort of popularity? Why is the message of this book, the Bible, so special to people? Now again, those questions wouldn't necessarily prove a thing, but just something to think about. Uh, but then think of some real hard evidence concerning the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible, how do you explain the Bible's freedom from mistakes? Now, I'll have to explain what I mean by that. The Bible is free of mistakes. For instance, 
The Bible is free from the superstitions and prejudices that were common in the days in which it was written. I'll give you a couple examples. Moses. The man Moses. Moses is credited with having written the first five books of our Old Testament, sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch. That obviously includes the book of Genesis, which talks about the beginning. Now, Moses, Moses, what about Moses? Well, Moses was trained in Egypt, right? In fact, he was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, or if we were to put that in more common terms, he was like raised as though he were the grandson of the king. That being the case, Moses would have gotten the best education available in Egypt in that day. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, that's just logical. So, Moses goes off to school. Moses goes to science class at his school. Now, he's the grandson of the king. He's got the best teachers available in Egypt. Do you know what they would have taught him in Egypt? Do you know what the Egyptians in Moses' day believed concerning beginnings? The Egyptians, now this sounds funny to us, but it's what they really believed in the day. They believed the world hatched from a flying egg and that men came from white worms that crawled out of the Nile River and then grew into men suddenly. Now that seems just ludicrous to us, doesn't it? But that, in fact, is what Moses would have been taught as he was being raised in Egypt. So here's Moses, and this is his academic training, and he sits down to write about creation. What does he write? He doesn't include any of that sort of superstition, does he? None of that foolishness is found in the writings of Moses. What does he do? He writes a book about creation that still stands the test of time today, thousands of years later, when we have made many scientific uh, discoveries and advancements, but his story still stands. How is it that Moses could write that and exclude all that silliness that was popularly believed in the day when he wrote it? How do you explain that? Again, we believe the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible, then you have some burden to try and explain how that is so. That's the, that's the burden we'd like to put on you. Or I'll give you another example. The great Bible hero Daniel. Daniel was trained in Babylon. Remember, he was taken as a captive in war. As a young man, he was taken to Babylon. And he was actually taught in all the ways of the Chaldeans, it says in the book of Daniel. And so again, he was a man who would have been given a, a good and proper education under the Babylonians. What did the Babylonians do in Daniel's day? Did you know that the Babylonians predicted the future by the flight of birds? And they would dissect chickens and look at their entrails and try to tell what was going to happen in the future by such goofy means as those. Now, again, that sounds weird to us. Uh, actually, comical, in fact, to us. But that's what they would have taught Daniel in his day. Did Daniel convey any of that in his famous book? Did he convey any of that in the things that he did and wrote and taught? No, he was a great prophet and a spokesman for God, but he was never influenced by those kinds of superstitions and prejudices. Now, if you don't believe the Bible, how do you explain that the Bible was written so long ago, but it's still free from those kinds of superstitions and prejudices that were common in the day of its writing? Furthermore, how would you explain that the Bible is free from contradictions? We talked some about this 
when we were talking a couple of weeks ago about the inspiration of the Bible. So we're not going to go into great detail, but just remember that the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by about 40 human penmen, uh, and yet they all agreed. Over, writing over that long period of time, writing from different places, uh, writing with different cultural, economic, and educational backgrounds, writing even in different languages, they produced a final book that has no contradictions. In 1874, a man named John W. Haley wrote a book that's still a popular reference work to this day called Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible. Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible. And then he, produ- he proceeds to, to deal with hundreds of supposed contradictions and proves in his book that none of them can be sustained as a real contradiction in the Scriptures. How did those men write? How did those human penmen of the Bible write and produce a book that contains no contradictions? That's an amazing thing. We talked about that again a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the proofs of inspiration. If you don't believe the Bible is from God, how do you explain that? I really think in, in honesty, you have to accept that challenge and try to come up with some explanation. I don't know what it is, do you? How would you explain the freedom of the Bible from emotionalism? All of us are familiar with listening to the news on radio or watching it on TV. And we're aware that these uh, news reporters are not just reporters anymore. It's become very common for news reporting to include opinions and also it seems also a clear agenda that those who are reporting the news have an agenda to try and make people feel or react in a certain way. I think it's a, an interesting sign of Bible inspiration that none of that sort of thing is found in the Bible. For I'll give you a couple of examples. In Matthew chapter 2, King Herod kills all the young children round about Bethlehem. I want to tell you, that was a true atrocity in its day. What does the Bible do? It just tells the facts. It leaves you to supply your own conclusions and emotions regarding that. Or when we read, as we did last week in Matthew chapter 27, about the crucifixion of Jesus. The facts are told. The information is supplied. Free of bias, you are allowed to simply read and supply your own emotions. The Bible is written in a different way than mortal men would have written that book dealing with those kinds of things. If you don't believe the Bible is a special inspired book, how do you explain that freedom from emotionalism? And then one other thing that I think we would include here. We're talking about how do you explain the freedom from mistakes in the Bible? We've often pointed out the Bible contains no cover-ups. We are in a political season. Big elections coming up late this summer and fall. What do politicians typically do? Well, politicians want to present their good side, right, and cover up their flaws. They don't want you to know about mistakes they may have made or things that they said that they shouldn't have said or things that they did they shouldn't have done. And so there's a strong uh, inclination on the part of politicians to cover up if there's anything, you know, if they've got any so-called skeletons in their closets they don't want you to know about. Well, what about the Bible? Well, the Bible's not exactly like that, is it? In fact, the Bible is full of stories of great men who lived throughout the course of time. But we see their flaws plainly exposed. King David, one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, we see him in, in a, a terrible fall in the matter of Bathsheba. Or even in the New Testament, a man like the Apostle Peter, we see him 
adamantly denying that he even knows Jesus Christ. So the great Bible heroes, their flaws are not covered up. They are exposed for us to see and to learn from. That's not the way the book would have been written if it was written by men. Do you see my point? And so we believe these to be proofs that the Bible is real. If you don't believe the Bible is true, how do you explain those kind of things? Really, we think that the doubters, the skeptics, the critics should feel some obligation to give an answer concerning all of this. i tell you something else that would have to be explained. If the Bible's not true, how do you explain all the archaeological discoveries which have come along? Time magazine said, in regards to archaeological discoveries, the Bible is often surprisingly accurate in history. Now, they say surprisingly. We're not surprised, right? But Time magazine says the Bible is often surprisingly accurate in historical particulars, more so than earlier generations of scholars ever suspected. U.S. News and World Report said a wave of archaeological discoveries is altering old ideas about the roots of Christianity and Judaism and affirming that the Bible is more historically accurate than many scholars thought. You understand archaeology is as people go about digging around in those areas where the Bible stories took place, they unearth artifacts, things that were there in the day. And everything that they unearth continues to confirm that the Bible story is true and accurate. How do you account for all of that? Let me give you an example uh, of some such evidence. We're all familiar with the story of Jericho in the Old Testament. When the, when the children of Israel came to the promised land, they crossed over the Jordan River and they, they were going to occupy this land that God had promised to them. And the first city they came to that they had to defeat was Jericho. It was a mighty and walled city. And it looked like there would be no way, perhaps, to defeat a people within the confines of that walled city. But you remember the story, of course, how that God instructed the children of Israel to march around the city once each day for six days. On the seventh day, to march around seven times, to blow the trumpets, to shout, and the walls would fall down, and the city would be suddenly captured. Well, for a long time, uh, those who are critics of the Bible argued uh, that this was a proof of biblical inaccuracy because they said, we don't even think there was a fortified city at that site in Joshua's day. Uh, but recent archaeological discoveries, 1990, in the publication Biblical Archaeological Review, they produced a series of new evidence from the site at Jericho which says that the Bible story about how that city fell is, is in fact quite accurate. They, their digs there at Jericho say the city was, in fact, strongly fortified. They can tell by virtue of the things that were in the city that it, the attack occurred, had occurred just after the spring harvest. The inhabitants had no opportunity to flee. The siege was short. The walls were leveled suddenly. The city was not plundered, which is unusual, of course, after a battle, right? And the city was burned. Now, that's what the archaeologists have concluded from the site at Jericho. Well, wait a minute. If you noticed here in red, here's all the biblical references that say that's exactly what did happen at Jericho. Right? And so that's just one example of how archaeological findings have continued to confirm the truthfulness of the Bible. Now, if you, that, that's, 
great faith-building information for us. How do you explain it if you don't believe the Bible? That's the challenge. I'll tell you something else. If I didn't believe the Bible, I would certainly be convinced by predictive prophecies. What if today, right now today, I could predict the outcome of the World Series in October? I'm going to predict that in the World Series in October, there are going to be two teams. I want to pick the teams. I'm going to pick the Yankees. They're not having the best year, but it's usually pretty hard to pick against the Yankees. And I like the Braves, and so I'm going to pick the Braves. Yankees and Braves in the World Series. Would you be impressed if in October it rolls around and in fact it is the Yankees and Braves in the World Series? Well, you might be surprised if the Braves make, Braves make the World Series. They almost never make the World Series. But let's say they did. And, you, and, and someone says, wow, wow, lucky guess, maybe, lucky guess. Okay, I'm going to go further in my prediction. I'm going to say Yankees, Braves in the World Series, and because I like the Braves, I'm going to say Braves win the World Series three games to two. I mean, excuse me, four games. Four games to three, this is, right? This goes, it goes seven games, and the Braves win the last game to win the series four games to three, right? Would you be impressed if that, in fact, is how it turns out? Now, somebody says, well, yeah, but it still could be a wild, lucky guess. I'm going to go further. I'm going to say Braves over the Yankees, four games to three in the World Series, and I'm going to give you the exact score of each game in order. Would you be impressed by that? Come on now, you've got to get impressed here someplace. <laughs> You'd be impressed by that, wouldn't you? You'd have to be impressed with that. I'll tell you, if you think that's impressive, or that would be impressive if somebody could do that, you've got to be very impressed when you read your Bible, because the Bible's got prophecies far more amazing than even that. Right? Let me give you an example. Uh, some of you are probably familiar with a book called Science Speaks, in which a, a man named Peter Stoner did some mathematical calculations concerning prophecies of Jesus. What he did was he picked eight prophecies of Jesus. Now, remember, there are over 300 prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. And this man, Stoner, picked just eight of those prophecies, and then he tried to do some mathematical calculations about the possibilities that anyone, by chance or even by design, could fulfill those prophecies. Here's the ones he picked. A man to be born at Bethlehem, to be preceded by a messenger, to enter Jerusalem on a donkey, to be betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, that money thrown down in the temple and used to buy a potter's field, silent before his accusers, and crucified with thieves. All right, so this man, Stoner, tried to calculate what's the chances that you could take just those eight things and that any individual, any particular individual at any point in history could just by chance fulfill those eight prophecies. Now, that's just eight out of 300 plus that are found in the Old Testament about Jesus. He, he calculated the odds of that. Now, obviously, there's, you have to do some assuming and so forth, but he said the chances of someone just by chance fulfilling those prophecies is one in ten to the seventeenth power. Now, 10 to the 17th power is a number so big that even our big spending politicians in Washington can't deal with a number that big. It's an enormous number. If you want to get an idea of how big that number is, Stoner goes on to explain it this way. He says, take the state of Texas. 
Now, I don't know how much experience you've had talking to Texans, but Texans always brag about how big everything is in Texas. Texas is really big. I, I'll superimpose our tiny state of Tennessee over Texas. You can put a lot of Tennessees in Texas. Ten to the 17th power. Take silver dollars. Right? Take silver dollars. Take ten to the 17th power of silver dollars. Cover the whole state of Texas with those silver dollars. If you did that, did you know that that would cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars? Ten to the seventeenth power of silver dollars would cover the whole state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. All right, now before you start spreading them out, here's the idea. One in ten to the seventeenth power. Before you spread those, start spreading those out, you marked one with a unique mark and threw it in with all the rest and mixed it all up, okay? So you've got the whole state of Texas covered two feet deep in silver dollars. And so you blindfold a man over there at Texarkana and you turn him loose into Texas. You go wherever you want, walk as far as you want to walk, but at some point, you've got to bend down and pick up one coin. What's the chances of that blindfolded man going to reach down and pick up that one marked coin? One and ten to the seventeenth power. What's the chance of that? Effectively none, right? There's no chance he's going to. Well, that's what Stoner says is the chance that the prophecies of Jesus could have been fulfilled by chance. Just eight of them. But there were over three hundred of them. That's, that's what we're talking about when we talk about fulfilled prophecy and its proof. Now, that, that just sort of, sort of confirms our faith, right? But the question we're asking this morning is, how do you explain that? If you don't believe the Bible, how can you explain those fulfilled predictive prophecies? And so, again, uh, all of this is just to emphasize by way of evidence. We're not taking a blind leap of faith when we believe the Bible. We believe it for good reason. And, in fact, if you don't believe it, there's, and if you are intellectually honest, you have to accept some of the kind of challenges that we've presented here this morning. Finally, let me suggest this. I would certainly wonder why people died to get this message to me. You know, when you pick up your Bible, that is in fact what you're doing. You are picking up a message that literally people died to put into your hands. That's amazing when you stop to think about it. What would be the case if this morning, as we were assembled here for worship. And long about now in our worship, a man comes staggering in the back door. He's all beaten and bloody. He's near death. And he's got a, he's got a piece of paper crumpled up in his hand. And in his dying breath, he hands it to you. And he tells you that someone you know in Nashville has told him, get this message into your hand. And as he's putting it into your hand, he dies. What would you think about that message? You say, oh, well, I'll put it in my pocket. I'll read it after lunch. You know, I'll get around to that later. No. You're going to immediately want to get that thing open. Find out what could be in so important that a man would die to carry that from Nashville down here this morning to put that in your hand. That, in fact, is what you've got when you've got this Bible in your hand. Not just one man, lots of men died to put this message into your hand. Why? I wonder why they would do that. How do you explain that? 
unless you accept the truth that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. All right, real quickly. We need to move quickly, but if we believe the evidence, what should we do with it? Well, think about it this way. Think what faithful men did throughout the course of history. If you believe, what do you do when you believe? Hebrews chapter 11 is that famous chapter we call Faith's Hall of Fame. It talks about great heroes of faith in the Old Testament. It talks about men of faith. But as you read about men of faith, you observe them acting upon their faith. And the, the very first one mentioned in verse 4, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. I'm going to go through this quickly, but I want you to notice the verbs of action. They believed and they did something because they believed. In verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house. That was a big job. He did it because he believed God. In verses 8 and 17, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. What did Abraham, the great hero of faith, what did he do? Because he had faith, he acted. And then the one that Joel read for us earlier, Moses, verses 24 through 26. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. What have people who believed always done? Well, people who have believed have always acted upon their faith. Faith must produce obedience. And so in conclusion to our study about evidences that we've been studying this whole month of June, the point of it is, if you believe, you've got to do something about it. You have to act in obedience to the commands of Scripture. In fact, it doesn't make sense to do otherwise. If all of these things are true, then good sense, logic, and reason demands that you must act upon it. Do you believe God? Do you believe the Bible is His inspired Word? Do you believe Jesus Christ is the risen Savior? If you have faith in those things, we beg you to act upon it this morning. If you've never become a Christian, become one by repenting of your sins, confessing your faith in Jesus, and being baptized for the remission of sins. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away and not been faithful to your Lord, come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing.